found out there was all these places out there. They were everywhere. These are big areas sometimes, big vertical drops, lots of trails and lifts. And have it be fully functional, you know, one year and then decades later be totally gone. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast is focused on the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com, where all Storm Skiing podcasts and editorial content live. We're also on Twitter, at Storm Ski Journal, and on Facebook. Episode 3, Jeremy Davis, founder of the New England Lost Ski Areas Project. Where did you take your first turns? Were you old enough to remember it? If you were, I bet that place means something to you. Is that place still there? There's a really good chance that it isn't. Mine isn't. I learned to ski at a place called Mott Mountain in Farwell, Michigan. 200 vertical feet, one double chairlift, one rope tow. That was in the early 90s. Place didn't last a whole lot longer. They did try to rebrand a couple times, rather hilariously. Uh, I remember driving up north somewhere and I stopped at the rest area and I grabbed a pamphlet and it was for Jasper Ski Resort, which I'd never heard of. And it had this dude on the front in like a neon, this was the 90s, like a neon one piece. And he's like flipping backwards on his ski pole. And then you've got some girl and she's, you know, on her snowboard, like sideways in the snow. Like she'd been holding a plank there for like 25 minutes. And then I figured out that they were talking about Mount Mountain. And I don't think Mott Mountain has had as much snow in its history as that pamphlet had on it. That place didn't last. But even though it would never be what that pamphlet was claiming that it was, the place was important. This is central Michigan. This is two hours north of Detroit. This is Rust Belt Central. This is a place where people need things to do, especially in the long, long winter. When I was growing up there, there were three ski areas within an hour of my house. Now there's one. Mott Mountain shut down. Apple Mountain shut down. Both of those places were mobbed at all times in the winter. So what happens to all the people who went there? I don't know. Those places weren't great. But in the beginning, when you're starting out, great doesn't matter. What matters is the place is there. It gets you going. It makes the spark. It sends you to the better places. Most of us don't start skiing at Killington. A couple of us do. Most of us start at the local bump. And what happens when the local bump goes away? How many ski areas have existed and disappeared? My guest today has documented through his New England Lost Ski Areas project, five closed ski areas for every one that's open now. And he thinks he's missing a bunch. He thinks there's still a lot more out there. This was one of the first guys I reached out to when I decided to do the podcast. I just I really respected the work he was doing. I uh, really found it fascinating. Jeremy Davis joins me in the storm. My guest today is the founder and head of the New England and Northeast Lost Ski Areas Project, which has documented more than 600 lost ski areas throughout the region. He is the author of five lost ski areas books, covering the Adirondacks, Southern Vermont, and the White and Berkshire Mountains. He is also a board member of the New England Ski Museum and the operations manager at leading meteorological firm Weather Routing, Inc., where he has worked for 19 years. Jeremy Davis joins us. 
Jeremy, so good to have you. Yeah, thanks, sir. Looking forward to talking to you. So take us back to the beginning. How did your interest in, in lost ski areas start? Yeah, so um, I learned how to ski in 1989, um, and um, one of our first family trips the following year, uh, we went up north uh, to New Hampshire uh, for like our first family ski trip. And we're heading up to North Conway, and on the way up there, um, we passed by a mountain called Mount Whittier, which was a former ski area um, that had uh, closed uh, back about five or six years before that point. Um, and it just really caught my interest. I was really curious about what had happened to it. I mean, we drove by it, and you could see the gondola over the road and an abandoned lodge and overgrown trails. Um, but it hadn't been abandoned too long, so it just started that process of decay. But it just really caught my attention, and I wondered what happened to it. And this was back, you know, 1990, so there was no internet. You couldn't search for it. There was no Google Earth or anything like that. So um, there weren't a whole lot of resources at that time to be able to easily find out that kind of information. And as I started my um, enjoyment of trying to find other new ski areas to go to as a kid, and our family took more trips, we ended up seeing more of these places, sometimes by accident, and then I found out that you get a couple of road maps and you could try to go find them. Um, and I found out there was all these places out there. They were everywhere. Um, and I just really wanted to know more about them. So that kind of spurred my interest. I just found it fascinating that you could have a, a large, you know, feature place, a large resort. Um, you know, these are big areas sometimes, big vertical drops, lots of trails and lifts, and have it be fully functional you know, one year and then decades later be totally gone. And it just spurred my interest about what was there and what had happened to it. So you see that first ski area on that first trip with your parents and slowly start to discover others. And then what was it around college when you actually turned it into a more intensive research project? Yeah, I what I so what I did is between let's say 1990 and 1998, I kind of I, I didn't you know wasn't thinking about eventually doing a website or anything like that because I really hadn't started um, developing too much in the early 90s. But what I had done is I started collecting some information. Um, I started talking to just random skiers on chairlifts or uh, went to antique shops and eventually sometimes found some old postcards or brochures or started to find some old ski magazines. Say, oh, there's some some resources out there. So I kind of slowly just started collecting some ephemera um, out there. And then in 1998, I just decided that I would start a little website since that was starting to become the rage. It was one of those GeoCities websites that don't, um, uh, you know, that don't exist anymore. But uh, I was really kind of curious about, uh, or I thought I'd put on the website, uh, start one, kind of share the information that I had found with the hopes that others would share what they knew. Um, early crowdsourcing back in the late 90s. And... That's exactly what happened, and the site just took off like crazy. Um, once people found it, they started sending me information. Um, as the technology started to improve with scanners being easier to, uh, um, to procure or people to take digital camp pictures, you know, it's amazing how just in 20 years ago how those were not all that common, but now everybody has one. Um, and people started to share their information and, um, you know, changed the website um, from GeoCities to where it is now and uh, just started, again, it just kept growing. I, I dug up what I knew and we kept filling in the blanks and kept updating each page and then people sent me more things and then more resources became available and then before you know it, you know, now 20 years later, um, we found over 600 uh, of these places. 
you know, it's amazing when you describe it, the internet back in the 1990s, because it was just not what it is today. We didn't have this social in complex to, to sort of aggregate information and, and gather people in places. So it, it, it tells you how this resonates with people that they just sought it out and found what you were doing. And it seems like a, a big part of this was not just you putting out what you had, but other people suddenly being able to contribute to you and you were kind of crowdsourcing this whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I couldn't have done it with everybody that, um, you know, sent me information over these years on emails, pictures, visited these places, because if it's just myself going out and, and trying to, you know, get all this information, trying to explore. I mean, you look at the geography of New England and just time and money and, and, and the effort it would take to do it all individually, um, it's, it would be a huge project. So thankfully, so many people live in different places and have archives where they can say, hey, I got this lost gear. Oh, I didn't know about this. It's two towns away. Let me go check it out and take photos and send them to you. Um, and so everybody's contributions to the site, I mean, the site would not be what it is today at all without um, the kindness of of, uh, of fellow skiers out there to go off and, and uh, do their own explorations and then share them with everybody. You know, there was a, a New York Times article about 10 years back that you were quoted in, uh, and you were quoted as saying, quote, the lost ski areas are closed, but they're alive in the hearts and minds of everyone who called those places home. I can attest to that. Just read my email for a week. Was there a moment, Jeremy, where when you first launched the site, you realized you were doing something larger than just collecting stats and maps and memorabilia. You were really, you were giving these places life, these places that meant so much to people, you were giving them life. Yeah, exactly. That was an unintended uh, positive consequence of, uh, of doing this research. So yeah, I mean, people's, people's emails that I have received over the years are heartfelt and, they, and they're, they're very detailed because these ski areas were, were much more than, you know, just the physical skiing. But these were places where uh, you know skiers you know took their families you know they they went on their family vacations there are places where um, people met their future spouses um, where they made memories where um, they ski with their buddies after work in the beer leagues or you know anything like that so the skiing becomes is, is so important but the experiences that were there and what those areas were like and what had um, you know per, you know happened in those places you know, I just wanted to make sure that that got preserved along with all the stats and maps. I love all the stats and maps and trail maps and, and the before and after pictures, but what I wanted to also try to help capture was, yeah, that personal side of it as well. Um, because, yeah, these areas just meant so much, and they meant so much to the volunteers that helped them um, helped them develop, and their kids learn there, and just, you know, they're just, they're amazing places. And when you go to them today and you can kind of see, you know, that they're, you know, in decay. Some of them are in decay. That's the thing. Some of them are, are falling apart. They're overgrown. You would never know that there was a ski area there unless you look closely. But other ones are quite very much alive too. Yeah, you mentioned the decay, and and that's one of the things that is most interesting about it to me is is just this moment frozen in time. Um, next to Bel Air, there's the old high mount area. Mm -hmm. And you can get to it very easily off of Deer Run. And I can't help myself whenever I'm skiing down it, you know, usually once a day, I pop off my skis and I sneak over there, even though you're not really supposed to. And they have this chairlift just frozen where it stopped in 1990, whatever. Uh, and that's always so fascinating to me. Um, you know, it, it seems 
a little bit like archaeology and a little bit like treasure hunting, what you're doing. And aside from the historic preservation and the emotional connection you make with people, I have to think there's kind of a, a thrill to the adventure part of it. Um, you know, I, I just have this picture of you like exploring the back roads and, you know, climbing these mountains and everything. Uh, can, can you take us into that part a little bit? Yeah, and it really is some archaeology too. Some of these areas have a lot to see. There's lifts that are fully, you know, standing and nearly intact, like you're talking about at High Mount. Mm -hmm. um, there's one, let's say, in northern New York uh, called Lion Mountain, where there's a T-bar that's just totally preserved as the day it closed, and it's just been rusting ever since. And you look up, and um, the trees have fallen down and hit part of the lift and knocked the cable off some of the towers, and the T's are kind of dangling, you know, 40 feet up in the air. And, you know, the last person, you know, that's been been that way ever since, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And, mm -hmm. you know, so some areas are going to have intact lifts and then other areas, um, you know, you have a collapsed base lodge that's rotting and, and falling apart and, and you can't go inside of it. Or you might, uh, the older ones, some of the ones that are, you know, 60 years old, 60, 70, 80 years old now, now that we're getting further in, into the, you know, in time here, mm -hmm. um, and the only traces you can find are maybe where the rope toe went, the path that it took. And you can see the cut through the, through, the, through, the, uh, through the soil where it was, or maybe the foundation of a lodge. You know, because we look at, you know, New England and the Northeast of how many, you know, relics are out in the woods. You know, we find there's old cellar holes and old roads and everything like that. And these ski areas kind of fall into that. So you wonder in a few of these cases that have the intact lifts, you know, 100 years from now, what's going to be left? You know, are they eventually going to be just removed or scrapped? Or, you know, 100 years from now, is there still going to be a chairlift completely rusted and, and, you know, terrible shape deep in the woods? It's interesting to kind of, to kind of ponder with all that. Um, and then you can look at the, you know, the natural, um, you know, process of the forest secession there too, where you can see how the, the vegetation is different, where the ski trails used to be compared to the surrounding forest. If you're trying to use that to mark where a trail might be, um, it gets easier to do it in the winter, uh, early spring and late fall when all the leaves are gone. During the summer, it can be nearly impossible to ever detect um, where those differences are. So, yeah, you kind of go out there. You, after you've seen a lot of them, like uh, like we have, uh, to go out there, you start to be able to pick up. Oh, okay, I think that's where the rope toe was. Or you can look at maps and try to help identify where things might be, and then kind of see if you're right and see if those remnants are left. And then you can be surprised. I mean, I came across uh, one mountain, Mount Wetatic in Massachusetts. Um, hiking down to it. This was in the late 90s. And um, the base lodge had just burned out, you know, like, like a few months before that. Some arsonists had gone in there and torched it. But there was a small building next to it that had survived this fire, was collapsed, and was just had been abandoned for over 10 years. And scattered on the floor of it were all the boxes of the ski brochures and trail maps. You know, there's paper. You know, you wouldn't expect to find that after all those years. But was able to save some of that and you know have that in the archives now so you never know what you're going to find um, when you go explore these places and that's what makes it so interesting to go check out and why i encourage people to go um, explore the places that are um, you know publicly accessible i always tell people be careful don't go on private property and don't try to to, to uh, ask the landowners to go check it out because then we don't a lot of people have been very gracious to let me check out some of these areas on private property for instance but you know, we, we don't want crowds going up on, on people's backyards, for instance. But a lot of these areas are on public property, and you can go and explore them to your heart's content and kind of see what you can find and take your family and friends and go and check out what's left. 
it, it seems that a lot of cases there there are some pretty cool relics left. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, a lot of what you're documenting, your your primary or sole source is testimonials, your personal mm -hmm. recollections. You know, so how important is it to do this now while that living memory still exists of something that maybe operated for one winter 70 years ago? Oh, yeah. Time is, is rapidly running out for a lot of these places to be able to talk to the people that were there, especially the older ones. Um, and I've been I've been lucky um, for a lot of times to talk to some of these these uh, skiers that are in, or owners for some of these places that were in their 80s and 90s and even in one case over 100 years old. Um, to be able to talk to them now because time just marches on. So a lot of times when we try to, um, you know, talk to them, I, I rec try to record an interview so we have some, a little bit of some, some audio with that. And the New England Ski Museum as well has done a lot of oral interviews too because once you capture it on, at least on, on tape there, it's you'll have that so that if you ever need to go back to that conversation, you can go to it. But you never know what you're going to find. There was an area in the Berkshires I did for my last book um, called the uh, the Thunderbolt Ski Area, um, and it only operated for two weekends um, in the in 1958. Wow! And um, and that was it. And then what had happened was is the the owner of it, who was in his 20s, um, was involved in a terrible accident with the rope toe, where he got stuck and ended up going through the machinery oh. um, and got really injured um, and was in the hospital. He said for almost a year to recover. Um, and you know, this was 1958. I read the articles in, in the archives of local newspapers, and I thought, well, boy, that you want to talk about an area that barely ever operated, you know, just a few handful of days ever uh, for this rope tow uh, on the east side of Mount Greylock. Well, just doing some searches, found someone with about the same age and phone number in that same area, gave him a call, left a message, said I didn't know if I had the right person. Uh, a few hours later, he called up and was was absolutely dumbfounded that someone was interested in hearing his story and said, yep, you have the right person, uh, let's talk. Um, so went over there and did a whole discussion with him for over an hour and he told me all about this place and, and you know, it was a really nice surprise, you know. And so those are the kind of stories that they're out there. You know, there's lots of these people that are still around, but time is ticking, unfortunately, as everybody's getting older um, and people move away and things get thrown out. So. Uh, you know, doing we're doing as much as we can to help preserve all of this, and that's why, especially with my recent series of books, I kind of want to make the books kind of the, you know, not the, totally the final chapter, but kind of a you know more permanent besides just the website, of a of an archive for for these places and give vignettes of these places and try to get the personal stories in there now. And a lot of the family members or the or the, the people that were involved in these areas have been especially appreciative that these stories are actually in physical print as well um, to be able to preserve them you know, pretty much forever. Well, between the website and the books, it's a really remarkable archive. Uh, you know, over 600 ski areas preserved in New England and 82 elsewhere. Does it ever surprise you that this fell to you, to just a guy who is interested in it? I mean, I would have assumed there was like a historical society or a museum or someone keeping track of this. I mean, luckily, you didn't make the same assumption, and, and you've now built this for all of us to share. Um, but, but does that ever surprise you that it's it's you're the one doing this? <laughs> well, maybe to this to the extent of it, but there's lots of people that have 
have done these in you know, on smaller scales or on different time scales or, or geographic regions as well. So, um, like the New England Ski Museum on the board there, and they have an amazing, incredible archive there, and and have produced lots of, of, of great articles and, and research and, and uh, material and and and. Uh, movies and videos and stuff documentaries as well so you know so there are definitely a lot of other groups that are you know kind of doing th you know t you know they're, they're finding these areas um or or researching them as well vermont ski museum is another one like that the international ski history association um there's other authors actually that have um ever since my series came out that have done a few other of the lost books out, out west as well in colorado and california which is good so it's it's great there's a lot of people that are are um contributing to it uh, to the whole, you know, the the whole uh, sphere of, of, of the whole lost ski area concept in, in all these different ways. And um, we've even seen a couple Facebook pages pop up for Michigan and Wisconsin to help preserve these and Washington State. So it's really kind of, it's really great. But, you know, that I, I never expected, you know, when I started this website back in, you know, in college up at Linden State College in Vermont when I was just a student, just as a, this is a fun thing to do to, to uh, to, uh, to to work on it wasn't part of any project any any classwork or anything like that but I never expected one day that we'd have a series of books and and have the the impact that we've had and again the whole goal of this is preserving it's a labor of love it's a total labor of love but to preserve all this stuff now because now is the time and because if it was done 50 or 100 years from now a lot of the stuff could would be lost forever. You know it's a lot of work done by you and a lot of other people over the past two decades. When you first brought this online, it seems like there was an explosion of information in discoveries. Was there a point at which the number of new areas started to level off? Yeah, and, and, and I had, you know, just between just my career and, and, and life in general, I had a little bit more time back, you know, in, in college and then my, in, in the early 2000s to have um, more time to keep dedicating to the research. So you keep finding, oh, here's one, here's one, here's one, or more newspaper archives have become available. And, um, you know, people email me in some of these really obscure places. So there was this whole burst of it. And then it's been kind of leveling off. And um, I've kind of focused more in the last several years towards the writing of, of the books. But even for the Berkshire book, uh, we discovered almost 10 new areas that I had never even heard of wow. after even all this extensive searching that, that we had missed. Um, or we had heard about the potential of, but never could confirm it. Um, so there was, there was still some out there and I know there's going to be more, there's more to be found or there's more to be documented more fully. You know, even on the website, some areas only have a, a couple sentences, you know, that maybe all we have, but somebody out there might have the treasure trove in their attic of a box of archives and photos and who knows what. So you, you never know. But, um, you know, we've, we found the vast majority, but there's still plenty more to be found, and there's still lots of stories out there. I mean, it's, it's nearly infinite, which could be done. Um, even what I have on the site or have in the books is still just a fraction of either what I've collected electronically over the years, um, taken photos of myself or had submitted to me, or are in my uh, basement in boxes and archives and filing cabinets where I've collected all these brochures. So it'll be, it's, an, it's a lifetime project, I think. So what was the most recent... Uh, lost ski area to turn up. Yeah, I mean, really, the boy, the ones in the in the Berkshires I, were the ones that I've really done the because that's the the newest book and some of the the biggest discoveries out there. 
um, you know, or ones that weren't on the website, you know, just, there, there was, again, out of those 10, I mean, just kind of, they all kind of came at the same time there, but some of them have some, some rather unique uh, histories out there. I'll give you one example out in the Berkshires was uh, um, the original Brody Mountains. Uh, Brody Mountain was a, um, out in uh, New Ashford, Massachusetts, actually had three separate, independent, totally separate ski areas at one time on it. But there was one that was from the 60s into the 90s, at, uh, early 2000s actually, that was, was very well known and very popular. Um, but there were two early rope tow areas that were right next door back in the late 30s and early 40s. And um, one of which was started by a Russian immigrant who was uh, kind of a character and had started this, this area um, with a rope tow. And, and then next door, um, an area opened up um, with almost the exact same name. Um, of having Brody Mountain in the title, like literally next to him, you know, he could throw a stone from his trail to the other guy's trail. Um, and that one we didn't really know about, the second one that was in there. Um, and uh, the, uh, the owner of the, of the first one was, was not too happy that he had a competitor right next door. And uh, when skiers tried to ski over from his side without paying, coming from the, uh, the competitor, he was not happy and would track down who, which car they came from and do things like let air out of the tires or, or <laughs> kind, of, kind of bother them and kind of say, get off the property or I'll call the police. And, um, and, uh, and he actually sued the other operator because of the name, saying that it was an infringement and he had the name first and he won. And that area next door to him actually then closed. And later on, the the Brody Mountain Ski Trail is the first one there. Um, he he operated into the, the mid to late 40s kind of off and on because and of World War II and tried to get around the restrictions of, of uh, wartime travel um, because people couldn't use their cars to get there. Um, and what he tried to do is turn the ski area into a church by having a church service on Sunday so that if he had it on the slopes, he could say he's a church so people could ski and get around that because you could go for religious services to drive. So he was, he was full of all <laughs> sorts of ideas, including even drilling for oil. He thought there might be oil underneath Brody Mountain, which the geologist said does not exist. So he was, he was trying to get everything to to try to get around stuff. So these were just some kind of neat stories I discovered in some of the old newspapers that were, you know, pretty much forgotten about. And we kind of tell the story of these places in the book. So what was the fate of, of that part of Brody Mountain? Yeah. So, it, and finally what happened was, is the owner there, um, got sick. He ended up having, um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, lung ailment and he ended up having to go out west to get into drier air out, out in the west and eventually he passed away out west but in his last year he had uh, Walt Shonkanek who um, had, was his first uh, ski area to operate he brought him in to help manage it for one year and then Walt went on to found Mohawk Mountain in, in uh, Connecticut um, the following year um, and then later started Mount Snow in Vermont so oh, wow. It's kind of neat the the tie of, of this of this place and the chain of events that happened, you know, indirectly or directly depending on how you look at it, uh, resulted in a whole you know large ski resort forming in Vermont. So there these these places are all tied together. Um, the area was was abandoned like so many of them. It became overgrown. Um, the base lodge or the lodge that he had there is is still. Um, it's still standing. It's a home now. And in the wintertime, if you go by, you can just through the woods kind of make out where um, the rope toe um, used to be uh, for that. 
Um, and uh, it's kind of a, a neat little little piece of history. And it wasn't for another 15 years later until the, the much larger Brody Mountain that most people would remember uh, was built maybe about a quarter mile or so up the ridge line. Yeah, and Brody is one of the biggest and, and, and maybe maybe the most significant in Massachusetts, which takes me into what I wanted to do next, Jeremy, which, which I want to go state by state and just get your opinion on, on what are the most heartbreaking losses, because there's always something a little bit tragic about these things going out of business, right, where, where people made so many memories. So um, if we can start right here in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, boy, yeah. Taking, trying to think. Yeah, because there's so many. Boy, there's so many yeah. stories out there. Of, Sixty-five you know, lost ski areas in New York. Yeah, and that's just what's on the site too. And there's right. really even even hundreds that that are all out there. And I still don't have a final total of New York, but I would not be surprised if New York had over 250 um, lost areas within wow. within the boundaries. Wow. Of course, these are going from little rope toes up to up to uh, up to bigger resorts out there. Up in like Lake Placid area, if you look up there, um, there's if you there was New York State's first privately owned chairlift, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that was at Cobble Mountain, uh, right in town, and had the potential to be a nice little in-town ski area with challenging trails and a 400-foot drop, and it was visible right from Lake Placid, right from the village there, um, and uh, it just went it went bankrupt. It was trying to compete against um, Whiteface, which opened up the following year, the, the, the more modern Whiteface, um, which had a lot bigger facilities and then it just, it just couldn't compete. Um, so you had this kind of neat place right in town there. Um, and then that chairlift actually got sold and eventually got reinstalled at West Mountain um, in, uh, in Queensbury, New York later on, um, where it operated until just a couple of years ago, actually right. part of it did. <laughs> so, you know, you can kind of look at that as New York state's first privately owned chairlift, but at the ski area that it operated at, it only did it for a couple of years before they went out of business. And, you know, they had some potential there. And that's the thing you look at, like, like the Lake Placid region, there's so many areas that were right around Lake Placid, all these little hotels and, and small community places, um, and they're all pretty much gone, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of them, when you read the stories about, um, they were easy, easy to learn at, you know, walkable for people in town to go check out, you know, added to that atmosphere up there, that Olympic atmosphere that they have and, and all the areas right around the immediate village there, um, that were Alpine, um, are now closed except for Whiteface. Yeah. I was shocked when I was reading your Adirondacks book. It, it seems like every town, every farmer just put a rope toe up in their up the nearest hill and yeah. kind of invited everyone over. Yep, exactly. That's what happened. Be, you know, if you look back at some of the early ones in the Depression and into just before World War II uh, time frame, you know, yeah, people were trying to have some ways to make some money and to have uh, some, some income in the winter. Um, some of these areas, they'd never really charged much or people just donated. They dropped in 50 cents or 25 cents into a jar to help pay for the gas to run the engine. Um, something like that, um, but you know they they were they were small operations and but it's it's labor intensive too. The rope toes are still easiest to lifts to build, but there's, there's still a lot of maintenance involved and you know and eventually the, these these rope toe areas kind of fell out of favor um, as more modern uh, ski areas uh, started to develop. So New York still has the most ski areas in the country. What's not thought of as a skiing hotbed is Connecticut, but 59 lost ski areas recorded there. Any big losses that you can point to? Yeah, you know, in Connecticut, it's interesting because almost all the areas in Connecticut were almost all rope toes that have closed. 
Um, there's very few that en ended up having much more um, than than just a rope toe. In fact, Ohoho is the only one that uh, I believe actually had one that's now permanently closed. Powder Ridge had closed and then reopened, mm -hmm. but I believe Ohoho was the only one that had a, a T-bar actually in the entire state. Um, so yeah, Connecticut was filled with all these little small, you know, 100 to 200 foot vertical um, rope toe areas, but Ohoho that had a Christmas theme to it. So there was Santa Slope and Blitzen and those kinds of things, uh, names for the trails. And uh, was was a, was definitely a popular place, you know, 300 foot vertical drop. Um, but like so many areas in, in that, and it made it, I think, until the 80s. And just, you know, cost of snowmaking and grooming and competing against larger areas farther north, um, it ended up, uh, you know, just closing and kind of fading away. But I mean, Connecticut, you don't think of, but that, you're right, you know, nearly 60 lost areas. I think it's a pretty amazing number for that small of a state. Right next door, Rhode Island, I'm not even sure if it's worth discussing, four lost <laughs> ski areas, little Yagu still holding on and seems to be mm -hmm. doing great. Uh, yep. But a lot of little areas gone in, in Rhode Island. Yes, yeah, and you know, you had like Pine Top in there. There was Nudicon Cannon Hill um, outside of Providence that had a, had a little rope toe out there. Um, Pine Top, I believe, is now a conservation area, and there's been some tree clearing there to help out for different, um, have kind of different uh, types of, uh, uh, of natural uh, terrain out there. Um, so yeah, Rhode Island, you know, little, even, yeah, little Rhode Island, but you know, the climate is tough in, in Rhode Island to really have a su substantial snow cover for much of the winter. So you need to have a big snowmaking system, and it's a lot of marginal weather. You know, it's almost a little bit of some southern skiing kind of creeping up into New England because it just doesn't get as cold as some of the more interior parts of, uh, of southern New England. And the thaws can just be totally devastating with, you know, pouring rain and temperatures in the 50s. Although that can happen happens every winter in New England quite a few times, too. But it's going to be especially tough in, in a little place like Rhode Island. And, you know, you got to think about it. If you're a 200-foot vertical ski area with a, with a chairlift or a few T-bars and you're trying to, to make a go of it, and your annual snowfall is just 25 or 30 inches a year, um, and you get thaws all the time, and your average high in January is 36, 37, you know, and that's and that's the average. You're averaging above freezing each day, you know. It's 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 tough and it's expensive, but you know, Yagu still going. Technology has gotten a lot better for snowmaking, so these smaller areas can make a lot more snow and a lot more marginal conditions than they ever could before. So. You know, if you could go back in time and bring some of the technology we have today with grooming and snowmaking, you know, how many more of these areas might be able to still be open? But then the question is, would they be able to afford the technology too? Well, another one just north, Massachusetts. This is kind of, this was shocking to me. 172 documented lost ski areas in Massachusetts. That's remarkable because I don't think there's 15 open ski areas in Massachusetts now. Yeah. It's it's a it's an amazing number, isn't it? Of how yeah. many places there were, and how many were around Boston? You know, within an hour of Boston, 60, yeah. 70 places. Um, you know, and again, the same kind of thing. You you know, the annual snowfall totals along the coastal plain of Massachusetts are not all that high, um, or they may get you get a big storm, but then it you know it rains three days later and starts melting, and you know you don't get the natural snowpack, and a lot of those rope places did not have snowmaking. Some of them kind of morphed eventually into some T-bar areas that did have um, snowmaking, 
Um, and but there's there's a good you know with Massachusetts of course you have a, a high population density so you can have more areas these little tiny town ones and a lot of these small town ones especially in the Boston area you know they would only really run when they did get that natural snow so they may only run you know six weekends during the winter time you know if they have a good year and they might be open from late December into early March um, and there's a few that have survived with a lot of investment in snowmaking and lifts, like Neshoba Valley um, has, has done that um, in Western Massachusetts. That's where I learned to ski. Um, but they've also diversified, too, and have a strong summer business there, too, and they've added tubing, and that's kind of the trick. You have to have, you know, if you're a commercial operation, you really need to have a four-season uh, presence uh, to be able to kind of keep things going. But one of the one of the sadder stories I think from Massachusetts, or there's there's lots of them, but one that I got to um, you know one of my first visits um, to when I started doing the research for the site was to Chickley Alp um, out in, out in uh, West Hawley, Massachusetts, which is out in the Pioneer Valley uh, near Berkshire Ski Area, and I had had some brochures and had managed to to find. Um, you know, kind of was kind of curious about this place and had managed to track down the owner at the time, Richard Desmarais, um, and he invited me to come down and, and see it. And, um, you know, we had a great afternoon. He was telling me all about the mountain, scrapbooks, showing me pictures and articles, and he was clearly very proud of what had had once been there. You know, it was a real family operation and, and one that he had really been passionate about. Um, and he took me around the mountain, um, and he was telling me that what had happened in 1979, 1980, in those seasons, uh, was was terrible for natural snow in New England. They had two years in a row of of very little snow. Um, you know, even the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid that year had to make snow. It was nearly snowless at that time. Um, so, um, so yeah, he and, and you know he was getting a little choked up as he was telling me all these stories. And I, you know, he was saying how much money he had put into it, and how much he would have kept it going, but he was just losing so much because he had to pay for insurance and maintenance and upkeep and and employees. And and if the area wasn't open, there was no money coming in. So you really got to feel about that these areas areas were, you know, much more than, you know, just a, um, you know, place for people to uh, to have as a business, but they were really a, a, a labor of love for these owners. So that was, that was a good, you know, kind of, you know, a lesson for me to learn early on was to really, you know, get the real feel of the passion and the amount of effort that these people had to put in uh, for this experience and how they would have gone as long as they possibly could um, if, if it had been financially viable. And they, you know, unfortunately, just with the, all those reasons there, you know, they had to kind of uh, pull the plug on it. But, you know, it's, it's tough on the owners and it was tough on the families for those situations. Yeah, I saw over and over again as I'm reading through your books that those late 70s, early 80s winters just clobbered a lot of the little guys. Um, moving north, where it's a little colder, uh, the big dogs, Maine, 79 lost ski areas in Maine. Yes, yeah, and, and there's some, some there's some big ones out there. You look at some of these really isolated ones, like Enchanted Mountain um, out in western uh, northwestern Maine there. That was one that had over 1,000 vertical feet. You can look at areas like, um, uh, like Saddleback that's been closed for several years, although there's a potential that that's going to be opening here this year. Another, another group trying to get that going. We'll see if that, that can happen or not. Um, and, you know, and Maine is, yeah, it's a big state. They go all the way from, you know, York County all the way up to uh, uh, Fort Kent, you know, open and closed areas out there. Um, one of 
my favorite ones and one that I recommend for all the listeners to go check out because it's so accessible is Mount Agamenicus in uh, in York, Maine. Um, that's one that's really a, a good one for people to check out because it's it's all um, on on publicly available land to go explore. There's a whole conservation area up there. The trails are are marked. Um, I believe they have mountain biking up there. There's hiking, uh, horseback riding. The base the base lodge, which is actually on top, it was upside down mountain, um, and. It's a great place to explore, and there are remnants left. The T-bar is still standing. The towers are still up. Um, the foundation for the chairlift is still there. They took the top of the chairlift unload and made it into a viewing platform for to look at the, the views to the north. And you can see the whole ocean as well from the top deck of the uh, of the lodge there at the top. So that's a that's a great one to, for people to go check out, and it's so easy to get to, um, you know, right over the main border. Um, for people to, to explore. But that area, yeah, it was open mid-60s to the mid-70s and had a chairlift, T-bar, and, and rope toe, kind of your classic, you know, 500-foot vertical, um, you know, mid-size type mountain uh, for uh, for New England. But it was it was a, a tough spot, too, because they, you know, they had to actually drive up the auto road to get up there. Um, not that it's an incredibly long road, but in the wintertime it can be a little bit tricky. Um, it was They ran into some financial problems. Uh, the snowmaking system apparently had some difficulty. There was some talk that the some of the salt from the sea breezes that would come in would melt some of the snow. I'm not sure how much that's true, but yeah. um, but just kind of a neat uh, a neat uh, place to, for people to check out. Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, in the next door, New Hampshire, tied for tied with Massachusetts, 172 lost areas, uh, including I believe Mount Whittier that, that you said was the one that sort of stoked this whole thing for you, right? Yeah, yeah. And Mount Whittier, people can go in even to today and go uh, drive by. It's right at the junction of, of Route 16 and 25 in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. Um, and you can't get, uh, you can't hike it, but you can see an awful lot of it. And it has really become overgrown um, since I last, well, I've, I've seen it many times since my visit, but it's my first visit there. Um, but the gondola somehow magically is still standing. Um, over the roadway. Um, it starts in a parking lot. There's a uh, there's a gift shop that's there, um, and then the towers come out of it. The gift shop is where the lodge was um, for people in the summer to, to, to ride the gondola, um, and one of the gondola towers is in a McDonald's parking lot, which I find is kind of funny. So look at this tower, and it's, you know, it's galvanized steel, and it still um, looks like, okay, where's the lift? Where's the, where's the gondolas going up? And you look across the street, and you see the towers, and they're kind of being grown up um, with the trees around them. There's periodic clearing on the lift line because they use it for communications and, and stuff going up to the top, cell towers and whatever. Um, but the trails are almost totally unrecognizable. They're so overgrown and there's been ice storm damage over the years and things have have, have really faded away for that. But that, that place will always be one of my you know, kind of favorite places to, uh, to check out uh, and, and explore and, and you know, I've been taking pictures of it now for almost 30 years, so we kind of have a little bit of an archive of the, the, the decay that has, has gone on about Whittier. So you see the progression. What happened to the gondola cars? Are those still hanging around, or are they long gone? Well, they're, they're, last time I checked at the gift shop, there were still three of them out front. They used just for decorations. And oh, probably 15, 20 years ago, I had talked to the uh, owner of the gift shop that was there, um, 
you know, he wasn't associated with the ski area itself, but he had the key to the room uh, where the drive was for the gondolas. So they, they let us go take a look at it when I explained who I was. Um, and all the gondolas were, were stored inside that, and they were covered in dust, and it, it was really, an, it looked like an amusement park that had been shuttered and, and uh, you know, all sealed up, you know, one of those alpine-looking, you know, Swiss-type uh, amusement parks you might see at a, at a Six Flags or something like that, with all the gondolas kind of all stacked all inside of it. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're still that they're still all in there, but um, they, but they were, there was dozens of them in there when I got to see that, but that's not for the, the, the public wouldn't be able to get in there, unfortunately. It's just kind of a, uh, you know, a, it was a nice thing to be able to, to kind of see them though and kind of uh, be where they check them out. That's kind of amazing to me that those are still sitting there. I don't know if you follow the Ski the East Facebook group or, or any of these other similar groups, but anytime uh, a lift is coming down at a, at a mountain, the first question everyone asks is, what are you doing with the chairs? What's happening to the mm-hmm. chairs? And they want these chairs and they want them as backyard swings or they want to uh, paint them and put them by their fire pit or whatever they do. I mean, if, if those folks ever wanted to raise a quick couple hundred grand, they could probably bust those things out of storage and, and put them up online. They'd be gone in a second. Oh, yeah. And they could probably sell them. They could sell them for a lot. Those would probably sell for over at least over $1,000 each, you know, depending on the quality of them. Um, they did that a quick funny story about these old ski lifts too is the Mount Cranmore ski mobile which is a lost lift not a lost ski area but a lost lift and that was um, in the late 30s into uh, late 1980s um, operating there and as a, a kid I got to ride in the summertime a couple times with my family as well and uh, when I got taken down off the mountain we were up on one of those trips up to North Conway and they were first they were for sale outside the general store uh, for $300 each. And I remember asking my parents, I said, can we get one? I really want one of these ski mobiles. And they, they, you know, correctly said, no, you know, we they won't fit in the car. It's huge. Um, we don't have a trailer. They're expensive, you know, you know, no, but I vowed that day that I would get one. Uh-huh. And, uh, 17 years later, uh, I got an email through my site, um, where somebody had had the last ones that were available that he'd bought from a the person who originally had sold them and um, they were available up in uh, Intervale, New Hampshire. And he says, you seem like someone who'd be interested in one of these and we're trying to find homes to people that would really care about them and not try to make a buck off them. Are you interested in buying one? And I'm like, uh, yes. <laughs> so um, he said, kind of make me a deal. So kind of made him an offer for some advertising on the site and uh, to sell the rest of them. And then to, um, you know, give him some money for it, too, at a really good rate. And he says, yep, come on up and pick out which one you want. So we were able to get a Cranmore ski mobile, which I would consider one of the rarest of, of ski lifts. And so that's in our backyard right now. And we've restored it. My uh, family restored it. And we got that all, um, all uh, uh, it's looking nice out in the back there. So that, That's incredible. Here, yeah. So it's kind of a neat piece, but you're right. People love those lifts, you know, whether it's a T-bar or a chairlift or, you know, anything, the nostalgia factor of these chairs, um, you know, especially if it's an area that you, um, that you learned at or took your, you know, vacation with, with your family, same thing, whether it's a lost or an open area, you know, to have a tie to a lift that meant something to you. We also have a Neshoba Valley double chair when those were for sale as well. And we restored that. Um, and that was the first chairlift I ever had a chance to ride um, at, a, at a ski area. So it's kind of cool to have two neat pieces in our, my own collection. And, but yeah, ski areas, they, when, they get, when those lifts come down, they are 
those chairs are right. They're taken up in, in days at the most. Wow, I can't believe you have a ski mobile chair. That's uh, other than maybe the Mad River Glen single. That's mm-hmm. the most legendary lift in the East. So, good oh, yeah. for you. That's a, that's incredible. <laughs> that's a great that's a great piece. Yeah. Uh, so, moving to the mothership of Northeast skiing, Vermont. Mm-hmm. One hundred nineteen lost ski areas. What are the what are the big scars there? Yeah, you know, kind of looking at you know my favorite one of my favorite ones in Vermont is. Um, I'll tell you kind of a couple quick ones here is Dutch Hill in southern Vermont. That one was, um, they called it Little Stowe. It was right in Hartwellville, Vermont, right over the Massachusetts border. Uh, just under 600 foot vertical drop, um, T-bar, J-bar, a uh, couple rope toes. Um, and pretty steep trails there. They had some narrow trails, really good archives on, on, on uh, Dutch Hill. Lots of photos, lots of brochures, lots of articles. So it's a very well-documented one. So I kind of really feel like I have the whole story of it. And um, the uh, uh, Madeline Ottman, who was married to Webster Ottman, who owned it, um, and she was also worked there as well as secretary and, and was and pretty much helped run the ski area. Was one of the the first female managers of a ski area herself. Um, she had emailed me um, or, or through her through her her niece a whole bunch of all of her memories and we have that on our site which is great so we have a lot of the personal background stories with that uh, before she passed away so we have all that information too but that's kind of one of my favorite because it was so well documented I mean boy hundreds of photos taken of that place in the, in the past um, and then it was totally overgrown um, totally abandoned everything was taken down um, it had been closed for you know 25 years 30 years and it, but it has now been restored by um, by the Dutch Hill Association of Skiers and Hikers (DHash) and they have a um, have a Facebook page and a website and they were able to do all the legwork to work with the Forest Service to be able to um, clear the trails and create glades and be able to clear some open backcountry terrain. So this lost area now um, is not really all that lost anymore. There's no lift, but the trails have been partially cleared and people are enjoying it again. So that's kind of a neat little trend that's been happening to a lot of these lost areas um, that have a good footprint and have a big enough space is that even though they might be gone, there's still something can happen where they can still be used in a different manner, um, not commercially, not lift served, but still be able to be a vibrant place. So that's kind of one of my favorite comeback stories of a place that people can now go and totally enjoy, but still has a lot of neat lost elements to it. Um, and then one of my other kind of favorite ones, or another interesting story, is Green Mountain College's um, lost area, um, and uh, that's in Poultney, Vermont. And now that college itself is lost. That college closed this year, um, but it was uh, it was operated by Bill Jenkins. Um, he was a manager and worked at a whole bunch of other lost areas in southwestern uh, Vermont. He had invented ski lifts. Fascinating guy. Got to know him um, before he passed away as well. I was able to digitize all of his photos, um, which were fantastic slides of all these areas in that region. And that was the smallest ski area I think that we found. Um, and he pretty much had created it using highway fill in the backyard of the or the field of the of the college to create it because he was the phys ed uh, director instructor. Um, so he created his own. Um, ski area pretty much out of nowhere and had a vertical drop of 31 feet seven and three quarter inches so (laughs) 
you know when Erie's really <laughs> pushing it when they're talking about a, adding a quarter inch, three quarters of inch vertical drop. At Can the you even turn? Yeah, pretty much. And that's was which is interesting. You look at the pictures of it, and it's a mound, but he textured it and contoured it so that there was a beginner um, pitch, there was an intermediate pitch, and there was an expert pitch. Um, and you could make yeah two turns tops really on that. But and he had four lifts up this little bump at one point, which was kind of kind of neat. Um, and people could you know practice. The students could really learn to ski in a non-threatening you know, kind of, you know, on a, on a bump instead of a big mountain. Mm-hmm. People to kind of learn and practice all the techniques, a lot of drill, you know, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, you know, constantly, you know, practicing. But it had kind of a neat progression. So I encourage people to check out the photos on their site of this 31-foot vertical ski area. So they run the gamut. They go from tiny ones like that to big areas like Saddleback, which is one of the largest ones to close, but might be coming back too. Yeah, on that note, I mean, when I'm browsing through your site, some of the stuff I come across just seems so improbable. There was a ski area in Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx, um, a couple in Long Island, which gets almost no snow. Um, What are some of the discoveries that have most surprised you? Yeah, the... The, the wide variety of the of the decades that they were open and closed, the sizes of them, the personalities involved, you know, there's so many of these, of, they're all so unique too. And, it's, you know, you, nowadays a lot of the corporate skiing, some of the skiers might seem kind of the same or have the same, you know, the same feel to it. You know, they all have fast lips, they all have um, beautiful lodges, they all have great grooming and they can, you know, they're all different topography, but you kind of get the same you know, experience each one, but all these other, you know, the, the, just the, the wide variety, I think was one of the biggest surprises. And, and then even the names of it, you got to love the names of some of these places and, or improbable things. Like there was one in Massachusetts that was called uh, keep out, no trespassing private property ski area because <laughs> the, the owner of this little rope toe place um, had no name for it, but the lift had to be inspected to be operating, um, through the state of Massachusetts and so the tramway um, uh, inspections. And he was telling the inspector that it doesn't have a name. You know, I don't have a name. It's just the rope toe in the backyard. And he's like, we got to have a name for it. So then he kind of in a, in a rush said, well, it's private property. Keep out no trespassing ski area. <laughs> and that was its registered name with the state of Massachusetts. So, you know, you get there's all these little things here and there, you know, and there's, again, there's so many of them. They're just surprises of, yeah, improbable locations. There were indoor ski schools that had a little slope on the inside. You know, whether you want to count it as a ski area or not, you know, it, it depends on, you know, how liberal the definition is of what a ski area is. Um, but there's just, they're, ev- they're everywhere. The variety, the size, the, the, what happens to them, how... Some of them can be physically destroyed when interstate highways were built, mm-hmm. you know, can, can, can take away, like physically the, the ski area is gone. Uh, in Lake George here, um, we, there's an area on Prospect Mountain um, that was, it's, it's a tourist, you know, auto road up there now, but Route 87, the Northway, um, slices through the bottom of the ski area, um, mm-hmm. and which has been kind of, you know, totally physically altered. And everybody driving north on that section, heading up to the Adirondacks, would have no idea they're driving through a former ski area. You know, the, the stories are endless. <laughs> There's so many, and so many interesting surprises. And once they're gone, as you've said over and over, once they're gone, they're usually gone. A couple have found a way to reopen, though. So, you know, we have Magic, which is probably one of the happier stories of the last couple of years. Um, Big Squaw. Uh, there's 
a lot of work going on around the balsams and trying to get that back up and going is a much larger area. Um, Saddleback, as you mentioned, uh, are there any others that you're hopeful can be revived? We're starting to get to the point where we're running out of the most likely ones that could come back. Um, you know, you never know with some other ones, but the ones that I think would have the, the, of the remainders that have not come back that are still intact enough that if the right amount of money or the right amount of effort came around, like Maple Valley in southeastern Vermont, mm -hmm. we would need a total, um, you know, essentially had to be all started from scratch. But um, there have been plans there to actually build a distillery or a brewery or something like that in the in the lodge there and then eventually maybe add skiing back in because that area is still intact although the lifts haven't run in, in nearly 20 years and mm. they're they're pretty much rusted beyond any kind of any use but stranger things have happened i look at crotchet mountain in new hampshire that was closed for you know well over a decade and that came back um so nothing, nothing's impossible um so that would be one. Uh, Snow Valley outside of Manchester, Vermont over the last 10 to 15 years has been off and on again for being possibly developed for a, um, uh, you know, for a, for a private ski area and private home development in there. So you never know if something like that were to, uh, to reopen. Um, but we're starting to run out of the most likely subjects because the ones that um, the ones that, if you'd asked the question about 10 years ago, I would have said there, there were there were some other ones, but they ha either they have come back, either as lift serve areas or they're coming back as these backcountry ski areas or some kind of a hybrid. I mean, Mount Escutney in southern Vermont is a mm -hmm. great example of a really unique hybrid um, area where. Um, they're putting a T-bar in the summer, and they've had a rope tow that was built by volunteers several years ago. Um, and the T-bar is going to go about five or six hundred vertical feet up the mountain and, and try to reopen a part of it. But that's going to be it. They're just going to. That's going. There's no future lifts or maybe even not even snowmaking, but they're going to run it as a, you know, as able basis uh, for that. But above it is all the backcountry terrain for the much larger portion of a scutney that that still lasts so people can get the benefit of a of a community t-bar type place with a dozen trails but then more adventurous here is can backcountry ski and go to the top and enjoy that kind of terrain and that's the first year i think i've ever seen that has gone from uh, a rope toe to uh, a t-bar to a chairlift to a high-speed quad and then back to a rope toe and then back to a t-bar <laughs> so, full circle Full circle and then some. Full circle and a half. It's really, I've never, there's, I've, it's hard to go from a high speed quad, totally closed, have all the lifts taken out, and then reopen with a rope toe of 150 or so vertical feet and a couple trails. It's, it's, it's unique. But the volunteers are, that's the thing. The, when people get together, when the volunteers in a community or a nonprofit group is formed, you know, and has the effort to fundraise or has some financial backing, and you can run these places on a nonprofit volunteer basis. If those keys come together um, and you get that help, um, and it's not going to be commercial, um, there's there's a chance, there's a good chance that something can happen, even even if it's not what it used to be, but it could still be an active place because. These are great resources for your community. I mean, like, yeah, Scudney, what a, what a great resource. You have this great mountain, um, and it would just be sitting there. And instead, now it's got a back, you know, it's got the backcountry skiing, it's got um, cross-country skiing, it's got mountain biking and hiking, and it's a wonderful resource. And it can be a nice financial draw for other people in the region to come there and spend a weekend or buy food after or go to a local bar or anything like that. So it's 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 been some great 
changes in that case. They're, they're smaller scale, but you know, they're, it's wonderful to see these places come back. And at the very least, even if you're running minimal operations, you're keeping it from going full, full circle back to forest, right? So if someone does yes. come along with their $100 million in their resort and they uh, want to bring the high-speed quads back, that's a possibility. It's a lot easier to do in that case. Yep, yep, for some of the places too. And, you know, and then some of them, they revert to public land, so they may not be able to ever have that again mm -hmm. for some of the some of the restrictions that are placed on it. But you're right, it, it preserves that property. It's kind of like what the rail trails do, you know, mm -hmm. like they, they're able to preserve a corridor and be able to turn it from rusted rails and make it into something where people are going to be using it again. And that's great. We want people outside. You want people to be skiing. You want people to be hiking. Right. These are things we need to encourage as a society. We need to get out and enjoy nature and not be on our phones all the time, right? So, Absolutely. you know, these, that's what keeps things, that's what keeps things going in whatever form that is. Um, that's great. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Any hope for these, these Catskill mountains that have gone out of business in recent years, like Bobcat or Cortina? Um, there's, there's, there's like always an occasionally a rumor that pops up that you know something will happen with those, but the further you, you get here, the harder it's going to be, and you're going to need someone with a huge, a huge bankroll. You know, the ski industry actually has had some good years in the last few years. Last year was actually a really good year for northeastern skiing. So, you know, if we can keep that growth up, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's an expensive sport, and it's not growing as 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 much as we'd all want it to. Um, so, you know, is the demand going to be there for? for some of these places or is it going to be maybe maybe some group can get together and do that same kind of backcountry or nonprofit model uh, you know too but I there there's very little about those areas coming back you know Bobcat's one area that I really wish I had had a chance to check it out but it closed shortly after I moved here to New York so I didn't get a chance to, to actually do it um, so you, you never know I haven't heard much you know High Mount though is going to be incorporated into Bel Air coming up here um, as part of their master development plan. There's been a lot of um, controversy back and forth about the development there at High Mount, but it seems like it's gonna that's gonna happen. Um, so that 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 be kind of one area that could be coming back. Um, but while while you never know, there's hasn't been a whole lot of others. A cocaine out in Western New York, I think, is is one too though that has. Um, they're starting that process of reactivating. There's some of these central or western New York areas too that that uh, I'm not as familiar with, but might be able to uh, be revived with the right amount of, of of money and groups getting involved with them. You know, there's one more model, and you know, you look at Haystack, and that came back as Hermitage Club, and, and that's that's had its challenges and it's closed right now. What's your what are your thoughts, Jeremy, on on these areas coming back as private clubs? Is it better than nothing, or or is it kind of pour salt in the wound because it just puts it just out of reach for all the people who used to enjoy it. Yeah, and you know, the, the, that's one, the Hermitage, and then there's also Plymouth Notch Ski Area as well, the former Round Top uh, near Killington, and that was another one, um, kind of the same rough idea, um, and both of those have either struggled or, or now closed. So, you know, the model of a private ski area, you know, I, if people have the means, the financial means, they're probably going to own a much larger, they're going to buy a home in a much larger area. You know, they're going to go to Stratton, Mount Snow, Sugarbush, something like that. Um, they would have the, the ability to be able to, to do that. So these smaller ones, if they if they are private and they're open, yes, it is at least something. You know, it's better than than, than nothing. But it, it is, you know, like I look at it myself and I'm like, you know, I, don't, I couldn't ski there. So you, you kind of look at it and be like, it's kind of a shame that the general public 
you know, kind of can't get in there, even if, even if they wanted to pay for the experience of a day pass, even if it was a hundred bucks to get in there. Um, you know, so I don't know that model hasn't worked all that well for these private areas. There's private areas out west, those are different, a different clientele, and there there's some bigger areas and bigger verticals. But you know, you take a thousand, twelve hundred verticals here, yeah, um, and you know, it's great if you got the money to buy a house and have it be private, and you get the high service and high quality. But it's also a smaller place too. So, you know, are you going to want to be at a small place and that's it? You know, with the with the the means to be able to do it. But I don't know. I don't think the the model hasn't seemed to work, and the Hermitage is really a mess. What a what a mess that is. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to happen with that one. I can't predict what's going to happen. Whether that will somehow come out of all of this with um, a different structure or if it's going to be lost for good and and other mountains are going to scoop up those new lifts that were put in there and those will get auctioned off um, that's what I probably guess is going to happen but who knows there's a lot of people put a lot of money into that that were investors that are unfortunately losing out quite big um, and uh, may not get their money back either yeah, that, that high-speed six-pack is worth quite a bit, especially a bubble lift. So th there doesn't seem to be a consistent profile to these areas that go out of business. You have big ones, you have little rope toes, you have some little rope toes that are still surviving. Um, Platykill is, is one I always think of that kind of defied expectations. There's really no reason it should still exist, but there it is, right among these much better funded and much better marketed neighbors. So what is it about these mountains? Like, what's the secret formula they find to survive when so many others just can't do it? I think what they do well with is connecting to their customer base and connecting with skiers to, um, to as, as passion. You know, it's a passionate place for them to ski. Um, kind of like what we were talking about a little bit how, with, with these lost areas, what they were like. You can look at a Platical, you can look at a Mad River Glen, um, you can look at a Whaleback in Vermont or Northeast Slopes, I'm Whaleback in New Hampshire or uh, Northeast Slopes in Vermont. Um, there's, there's plenty of other examples too like that. But what they, what they do is they, they as a kind of a throw, magic is of course another great one too, as, as an independent kind of throwback area, um, they're more affordable um, than some of the bigger resorts. They don't offer the same, necessarily the same uh, experience as the bigger resorts, but that's fine with the people that ski there because they're having a blast. They can, their kids go off and their mom and dad go have fun or the families or groups of friends go out there. Everybody's having a good time. Um, the mountains seem to, to care about you. They're, you can tell when you go in there, the lift attendants are friendly, the instructors are friendly, they, the people that run the lifts are friendly, the ski patrol is engaged. Um, it's a nice escape, you know, like life, life's pretty crazy for a lot of people right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, skiing is an escape. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful sport that people can do at whatever level they want to do it at. Um, and what a great way to, to get away from all the stress in the world than to be able to go out in nature and have a blast and fly down a mountain with your friends and family. So those mountains really tap into that and people are like, you know what, this place may not have a high speed quad, but gosh, we have a blast and what awesome terrain or, you know, it's fun hanging out at the bar after and all my friends are all there. And that's kind of their, their model. Um, the big resorts are, are great too. You know, I ski a lot of big resorts too. Um, I ski a lot midweek because of my work schedule, which, which allows me to have a different experience at a bigger mountain than on the weekend, which I probably would avoid. Um, just because of the crowds, I kind of like it a little less crowded. So the weekdays are a different experience for me. Sometimes the weekdays kind of feel like a smaller mountain uh, because of the less crowds. 
Um, and then on weekends, if I have them off, I could go to some of the smaller or medium-sized mountains as well. So it's definitely not to knock the bigger resorts because they offer a really different kind of product, and you can crank out you know 30,000 vertical feet and 30 runs and and just you know really have you know tons of actual skiing in. But the smaller ones, yeah, it's they're they're going on a throwback. But the vibe and the atmosphere at these and the the races they have and the parties and and the events they have. That helps to set them apart, and people just really enjoy them. So I, I encourage the listeners to go out there and find these smaller, medium-sized places, search them out wherever you are um, located, and and pay, and support them and have a have a good time at them, and you'll be pleasantly surprised um, what kind of experience you'd see at them. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum of, of these survivors and these soulful little areas that have kind of made it by connecting with people, one thing that you write about sometimes that I find really interesting is these proposed ski areas that never were. So you look at like Mackenzie Mountain or Blue Ridge up in the Adirondacks, like these areas that could have been major parts of the DNA of Northeastern skiing that just don't exist. What are some yeah. of the ones that stand out to you as just like, wow, if that was here, how cool would that be? Yeah, one of one of my favorites too is that Lion Mountain up in uh, northern uh, the northern parts of the Adirondacks. Um, it did operate with the T-bar and a few trails, but that was only a tiny piece of what it was going to be. It was actually going to have up to 26 trails and over 2,000 vertical feet. Um, it's up in the northeastern part of the Adirondacks, and it kind of sticks out. It's got a very high prominence. So if you, you can hike it today and hike up to the top, and it, you're well above the Champlain Valley, and it seems so much higher than the surrounding terrain because it's it goes down to the valley, and even the, ver- the, you know, the vertical is almost 3,000, over 3,000 feet from the top to the actual bottom. Wow. If you look at the Champlain Valley, the skier itself is about 2,000. Well, the, the mount where the skier was about 2,000 feet, but that's big. Um, and they were it was going to have a marina and campgrounds and, and all these lifts, and it just... They were beset by tragedies and, and financial problems and were only able to get this T-bar going for just a few years um, at it. So, you know, that's certainly one of those, um, you know, areas that would have been, you know, interesting to uh, to have had um, as part of the DNA of uh, Northeast skiing. Uh, Hoffman Mountain is another one that actually got as close as to having a, um, in New York State, they had to have a constitutional amendment to allow it to be constructed. Um, and that failed rather miserably because um, people in the in the 60s with whiteface and gore already open and um, then uh, the, the population uh, the voters did not want to have another um, a, yet another New York State operated uh, ski area up there but that was another one that would have been a, a huge place and, and would have um, had even easier access than Gore Mountain for instance because it would have been pretty close to right off the highway mm-hmm. and would have been visible from from Route 87 going north. Like New York State, there's always been um, this tug of war between the public lands and private lands and development with the Adirondack Park and um, you know and trying to because they're trying to compete against some of these other ski areas in Vermont. So you know there's there's a lack of larger big vertical resorts in New York um, because of all of that. And so that would have been those two examples would have been interesting to have had um, as part of the uh, part of the, the landscape of skiing. Uh, Dorset Hollow in Vermont is another one outside of Manchester, another one that would have had well over 2,000, 2,500 vertical feet. So yeah, you look at these proposed mountains and they, some of them went pretty far and some of them, 
you know, only went to the the the, uh, the drawing board. But I in my in my books and on on the website, I try to make it so they actually had, had you know, it wasn't just two people talking in their living room like, oh, it would be fun to put a ski area up here. It had to go through some kind of um, you know process of starting to get permits and forming a corporation or or starting to develop um, you know some of the 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 facilities there and to consider it to be one of these proposed places. There, there are quite a bit and I'm sure there's even going to be more out there we'll keep discovering. So, Yeah, it's interesting how, how things change over time and the public attitude toward these ski areas. And it, it, one thing that is somewhat related to that, it, you said something interesting in Vermont Ski and Ride a few years back um, and, and you were pointing to the influence of social media in celebrating some of these quirky areas like the one we were just discussing. Um, so of Hogback and Dutch Hill in Vermont, you said, uh, quote, with social media, could they have gotten the word out on how cool their skiing was and how you didn't need a huge vertical drop to have an awesome time, unquote. So it, like Magic and Platykill, for example, strike me as these kind of like funky little areas that get a good social media run. But what are some other lost ski areas that you think if they would have just hung around, they could have grabbed that essence of hey we're not Killington but we're awesome for these reasons yeah and that that's the thing kind of it's like a nice little exercise to think back in time like right what if Facebook or Twitter was around in the, in the 50s or 40s or something mm -hmm. like that you know could could those areas have gotten their word out because social right, it puts it puts a lot of these ski areas on the same level um, they develop a, a following and then people share all that cool stuff and especially if they have a good social media department where they're you know posting lots of cool pictures and vintage photos and you know telling people to come up and spread the news and people share and then those people share and you know before you know it lots of people are aware of things that they wouldn't have done back in the 50s and 60s you know where things were a lot slower you had to do with things on the news or the radio or newspapers or radio or mail things out and it just you know it, it, it was a lot more work and a lot more expensive um and a lot more you know, choice you, it sounds like Right. Yeah. You know, and, and so now at least you can get that, you know, websites and stuff. Uh, obviously, what, you know, social media and messaging and everything is a little bit easier. And, you know, in terms of getting, you know, out there um, organically too, people really are passionate about it. And you see that a lot, let's say, yeah, with your platicals and your mad rivers and your and your magics and they get a big powder day and they're taking great photos and people are sharing it with all their family and friends and everything like that. Um, so, um but yeah, other areas that they kind of hung on or had really taken advantage of it, you know, and really had developed a, a brand where they're able to, um, uh, to, to, to promote themselves like that, um, or to, or to different levels. Gosh, I, I think King Ridge in New Hampshire could have been one, you know, as a family place and kind of a fun, you know, had a fun, uh, Alice in Wonderland kind of theme to it too. You wonder what would have happened if they had been able to, uh, have some, uh, some social media back in, in the nineties because they, they, they closed in 1994, 95. So, you know, that really wasn't happening to the, you know, just starting things, just starting at that point online. Um, you know, that would be, you know, one that could be interesting. You know, you look at, um, some of these really older ones like, you know, Thorn Mountain in New Hampshire, which had really cool views of Mount Washington. Could they put up a webcam at the top and looked out at it? You know, this is all 60 years ago, but you know, you know, there's all, there, there, there's lots of those places. And I think almost any of these medium sized places, yeah, Hogback, Dutch Hill, they had stuck around, um, and, and got that word out there. Um, 
you know, it's good. And even when people move away, too, that's the thing, too. There's a lot of people that follow these feeds um, that may have skied, let's say, like a magic back when they were kids. But they live in California now and may never get back east. But they love following along with it. And it kind of keeps that brand or that experience, um, you know, to the forefront. You know, they're looking at it. And even if they're not anywhere near the mountain, they can still follow along and share or send to their family that might still be back east and say, hey, look at this. It's a great day. Go check that out. So... Just some, some thoughts with that. Yeah. So uh, I know it's about 100 degrees outside right now, um, but what's your ski season look like? Do you, do you, do you have a home mountain? Um, so, yeah, where I live in um, Saratoga Springs area, uh, Lake George area, um, our local mountain here, West Mountain um, mm-hmm. in Queensbury, um, has gone through a remarkable transformation um, in the last um, five to ten years here, five years or so. They've replaced every one of their lifts, uh, including this summer they're bringing a new triple in. Um, they've added snowmaking to every trail. They've had a mud, then the snowmaking is just a, it's night and day from what it used to be. I mean, I skied there this winter. It's a good place after work when I got a couple mm-hmm. hours to, to, to knock off and I want to just get, uh, get some runs in uh, on the way home. So I can, I can see the trails from the back of our office at work. So that's, so that's good. And I see the trails every day going into work. Uh, so it's always there. So that's kind of neat. I don't know um, if that's good like, or bad because you just look out the window all day. Look it out and see it kind of in the distance there. Just the, you know, and, um, you know, it's a thousand vertical. Um, and they have, you know, about, yeah, probably about a dozen different ways down, but they have they have a lot of you know narrower trails that kind of connect and weave their way back and forth, um, and they've really done a good job renovating their base lodge and they're putting a whole new cafeteria in. They have a great restaurant, um, but it, what a transfer! And, and the lights for night skiing, I mean, just night, you know, just literally night and day. It used to be very dark at night over there skiing, and you couldn't see anything, but it's had a total rebirth and. We're, you know, I love skiing there now. It's again, it's a good place to, you know, I don't have a season pass there, but you know, it's close enough. And the view of Glens Falls at night is, is a nice surprise. People that go up there, it, it uh, you see the city below and you look at the, the mountains and it's, it's, it's one of my favorite kind of local places. My ski season, how it usually works. Um, I work, uh, you know, different rotating shifts at weather routing. So I kind of work. Um, I, every, every week I roughly have a day off during the week and I have every other weekend off. So I do get my days spread out a little bit, which is actually good for skiing. So I, I love that schedule actually mm-hmm. to have that. Um, so it's always a mix of, well, where's the best snow? Mm-hmm. Um, where, where's the budget? You know, is, is it going to be a day where it's a, you know, going to be expensive day trip or do I try to buy the tickets online on their websites earlier or do I have a voucher? Um, you know, we're, and um, we're centrally located. I can get to the Adirondacks, the Green Mountains of Vermont, uh, Berkshires and the Catskills mm-hmm. within less than two hours. So and some of those are less much less than that. So I can kind of pick and choose where the, the best is, but I mix it up between early seasons, you know, a lot of the bigger mountains that are opening up early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of migrate to the mid-sized mountains that open up. I love skiing in Vermont. Um, uh, Go over to uh, to Stratton, Mount Snow, um, Sugarbush, um, Magic, Bromley, um, all the areas there in Killington, especially with their early season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go up to the Adirondacks, go up to Gore. Um, I, I try to go to you know these smaller, medium-sized areas where I can, going back and forth. Um, you know, try to kind of rotate through. I like to go to them more often, but 
you can only get to them so so many times just because of the, my schedule. But I kind of rotate every several years and try to hit up, you know, Whale Back or Northeast Slopes or mm-hmm. um, then getting up to New Hampshire when we go up for our ski museum, uh, uh, Hannah Schneider race in March. And I always try to go to Tenney Mountain, which reopened. Uh, they've That's another great story with them um, reopening. Great um Great medium-sized mountain skiing there midweek is like having your own private ski area. Uh, literally, it was I think the day we went up there in the <laughs> afternoon. By three o'clock, everybody else had left but me. Um, so I, I was I'm pretty sure I was the only person there on the entire mountain. It was a very interesting experience to have, I'll tell you. Um, and we've been also going up and doing some trips into Quebec um, as well, because um, there's there's a whole bunch of of these kind of smaller medium-sized places up there uh, to check out. Um, and it's not that far away. Um, it's it's not day trippable, but it's in it's it's not a bad drive to go up there. So, a couple of years ago, we did eight skiers in eight days north of Montreal, but we didn't hit Tremblant. We kept it to all the small local places, and that was a lot of fun uh, to check out each one of these 400 to 800 foot vertical hills each day. Um, and then last year, did five skiers up around Quebec City that we've been trying to to get up to. So, like to mix and match, um, kind of go all over. And try to stretch out the season as long as I can. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's time and money allows. Right? Do you have a number of days you try to hit every year? Uh, I try to, if I get at least 20 days in, I consider that a good season. I've gotten up as high as 30 um, for, for myself. I'd, I'd love to have a lot more than that, but that's um, that's what I've um, been kind of averaging the 20 to 30. Yeah. Um, but I also get cross country days in too. Um, we're lucky here in Saratoga area that there are quite a few. Um, cross-country ski areas that are either free or um, very affordable that are you know, very well kept up. So I've been kind of mixing it up and get some you know, aerobic exercise through cross-country skiing and trying to pick that up a little bit too to kind of mix things up a little bit. So I kind of if you add those days, that's probably five or six days of that a year and snowshoeing and stuff. So kind of try to, try to be all out, you know, as much outside as, as possible. Um, and where I live, actually less than five minutes away, there's a uh, a former scout camp that's now called the Wilton Wildlife Preserve, and they have that for cross-country skiing in the winter and snowshoeing, and that's only five minutes away. So it's like, okay, if I feel like I want to get out and get on snow, it's you know literally a five-minute drive to go do that. So you're definitely getting out there, and I have to ask you, because you might be the first meteorologist I've ever uh, spoken to, do you, do you ever get frustrated by how much your TV colleagues hate snow? <laughs> well, that's, it, that's a very good point, because there are a lot of, TV meteorologists that when the snow comes that they consider to be a catastrophe and stay inside and it's the end of the world and you're going to freeze to death and all that stuff, you know, you just have to, you have to take precautions. There's, there's always a thing, like if it's a blizzard, yes, you're probably, it's a good idea to stay inside. But then once that's done, um, you want to get out and enjoy it. I mean, I, um, I did a little bit of TV weather here at our local station uh, in Glens Falls for a while. Um, as part of our work with weather routing. And I, whenever it was snowing, I always told people, it's a great day, there's six inches of new snow, get out and enjoy, it's fantastic. You know, don't sit inside, you know, throw an extra layer on, just make sure you're well-dressed and get out and enjoy it. Because yeah, nothing frustrates me more. And it frustrates the ski areas too. They're, they have a big marketing effort to actually target the TV meteorologists and say, look, don't scare the heck out of people when it's snowing. You know, talk be 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 real about the conditions out there. But you know, 
tell people to get out and enjoy it. They showed a good example. They really this I think it was Christmas that had some cold days and, and some of the local meteorologists in Boston had been saying how stay inside, don't even think about going out and then they showed a video of, you know, kids out in the snow having a blast because they were dressed warmly, you know, mm -hmm. learning how to ski up at some of these bigger Vermont mountains. So yeah, it's what they say. There's, there's, there's no bad weather, only bad clothing, mm -hmm. you know, or, or bad cars. If you don't maintain your car, have snow tires or something like that. So, um, yeah, people, you know, it, that, that does happen. You know, I see, I've seen it, you know, just, I'm one of those people that when I see snow that, you know, I'm looking out the window waiting for the first flakes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. We could use a little bit right now. Yes. Um, so what's next for the New England Lost Ski Areas project? So for what's going to happen probably for this year is I'm going to continue to do some more talks and presentations from my last book on the Lost Skiers of the Berkshires. Mm -hmm. So we'll be posting that on our Facebook page. Um, you know, we're going to be doing that. I really want to push that for this year. Um, the book came out around uh, just before Christmas last year, and it was hard to get a few of the talks scheduled during the ski season or pre-ski season when people are starting to think about it. So um, I'm going to be pushing to, to do some more talks at different ski areas, um, local talks across the Berkshires. There's lots of good uh, libraries and colleges to, to go talk to. So that'll be the case for this winter. Um, and then we're going to start thinking about writing the next book, which would be on the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. I'll go east, another region, because the Berkshire book was originally going to be all of Western Mass. And, mm -hmm. and after about a month of doing the logistics and really looking about what I needed to write about and, and, and find out, I realized that would be way too much for one book, at least what I had for my parameters. It would have been a over a 500-page book, I think. So we had to kind of uh, break it up into two, which was good because it gets another title out of it. But it also allowed for more space to cover each of these mountains because, you know, how do you cover Brody Mountain in a thousand words? You know, right. you can't do it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, like, how do you even scratch the surface? Um, even some of these obscure Rokto places are 500 or a thousand words. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure you have enough to, to dedicate uh, to that. So next thing would be to do that. Um, the Facebook page is always updated. We do a little less in the summertime, but in the wintertime, I'm always posting on there and sharing what people send. And you know, and, and the other thing would be to update the website, which is now starting to become a very vintage-looking website, which mm -hmm. some people actually find cool because it's kind of a retro <laughs> site, you know, right. um, with lists and, and, and less dynamic. But the problem is, is that to go through and really modernize it and with, with all the articles on there um, and all the details and all the the database work that we do it is, is rather daunting uh, to be able to, to do it. You know, it uh, the technology has changed so much since when I started the site that, uh, um, you know, that we weren't anticipating the, the changes in technology that would make it easier to display with maps or, or, or hiking guides and make it, people could post comments and be able to, to share photos and everything like that. So, so stay tuned. Eventually that will also, you know, get upgraded um, as well. So, and... And as you've mentioned, this is a labor of love. You have a full-time job. Um, yep. A lot of people have contributed a lot over the years, resource-wise. Uh, but if, if folks like what you're doing and they want to donate, how can they do that? Yep. So if you go to our website on Nelsap, we have the uh, donate PayPal button on the side there. If people want to just chip in five, ten bucks, that's every little bit counts. It goes towards, um, you know, a uh, towards research for the next book. Goes towards the web hosting costs. Um, sometimes the procurement of different um, items to be able to, to kind of save and archive. Um, and they can also, we have the link on there on, on our website and on our Facebook page to uh, to buy the books. 
And I think if people are interested, the, the books, um, they make, you know, they're, they're, it's a good way that you, they get to keep, you know, a good piece of the ski history for themselves. I can personalize them, sign to them, send them to uh, wherever they need them to be sent. Um, so they can also um, purchase the, uh, the, the books, which will help support the site and help keep the, uh, the research going on there. Um, and, I, and I think they'll enjoy them. You know, pe people, have, when they get the books and they kind of read all this, and they're, it's full of all new information. It's not just a copy of what's on the website at all. It's all totally new in a different format with different photos. So it kind of is a nice uh, balance to the site as well. So Yeah, because I had initially explored the site, and then when I when I read the first books, I was impressed with just how much more detail there was, uh, just about the backstory and the narrative and, and what happened. And, and I really like uh, the section you have for each ski area of, of if you want to visit. And some are, no, don't. It's private property under no circumstances. And others, you give very detailed directions. And I, I think that's one of the best parts of having the actual physical books. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's that's been the goal over the last three books to be able to uh, to really do that. Because I, what I want people to do is when they read the books, is then yeah, you're not only just getting the history of it, but you're getting a guide. You're getting an explanation of what's there and what can you go check out. Some places you can only see from the road. You can drive by, park on the side, take a peek, and leave because it's on private property or there's not much to see. Others of them are are a whole day trip. You can go and explore to your heart's content and find all sorts of neat things in there. And that was my, yeah, that was a good goal of the, of the book. I wanted to make sure that people could get out and enjoy these places and not just, they're memorialized in the book, but they're not totally gone yet. You know, you can go and see what's there or you can hike up it or you can have a picnic at it or cross country ski or snowshoe up it. And in some cases you could downhill and backcountry ski, although the brush and the, 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 the trees and everything can make it somewhat difficult to do that. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the goal. Remember that these places are they're lost for alpine skiing, but they're not necessarily lost as a place that you can still enjoy in some way or fashion. Well, it's fascinating stuff, Jeremy. I, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time today. And I know we went way over, but I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. I enjoyed speaking with you and uh, have a good ski season. That was Jeremy Davis, founder of the New England Lost Ski Areas Project. So impressive, the depth of his knowledge, the archive he's assembled over the years, and he knew all that cold. I, he did not ask for any questions in advance. All that information lives in his head, but luckily, for all of our benefit, he's put it on nelsap.org. Go check it out. It really is an amazing resource. Uh, let me know what you thought about that on Twitter, at Stormski Journal. Also on Facebook. Who else do you want to hear from? Who's on your wish list? I'll tell you one guy that is probably on your wish list that you'll hear from next, Magic Mountain President Jeff Hathaway. He will be my episode four guest. To get that episode the moment it's available, you'll want to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm Stuart Winchester. Let's do it again soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.